0: So I realized last time we actually didn't tell people how they could get in contact with us because maybe we like to be the world's best kept secret. We don't exist. We don't exist. (laughs) So if you guys wanted to reach out with questions or you wanted to find midwives for anything, really, um, you can find us. Our website is www.holisticbirths.com. That's W-H-O-L-I-S-T-I-C, births with an S, dot com. It's way too hard for me. Who, who says WWW anymore? <laughs> I was born before Google existed, so I'm a boomer now. <laughs>
1: okay, so just for Gen Z, that's holisticbirths.com. Holistic with a W,
0: births with an S. <laughs> and our socials are the same. You can find us on Instagram at holisticbirths. Um, and so reach out. We'll be happy to connect.
1: Yeah, we're still trying to figure out TikTok. If anybody's a <clears throat> pro, please come over Thank you.
0: (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Welcome to the Holistic Birth and Wellness Podcast, where we celebrate the incredible journey of childbearing and delve into the heart of women's health. We are your hosts, Andrea and Maggie. We are licensed midwives and advanced practice lactation consultants dedicated to empowering and guiding you through the transformative experience of pregnancy, childbirth, and beyond.
1: Join us as we explore stories, expert insights, and practical advice that pull from both allopathic and holistic approaches. Our desire is to foster a community that honors the strength and beauty of every woman's unique health experience. We value your time. Thanks Thanks for listening. Hello, and welcome back to the Holistic Birth and Wellness Podcast. We really appreciate you listening to another episode. We are so grateful for your feedback and excited to release Maggie's story today. I'm your host for this episode, Andrea, and we get to hear about the famous Dr. Maggie and why (laughs) she is practicing midwifery care. The very
0: famous, you know, world-renowned. I'm just kidding. Just (laughs) kidding.
1: So, with no further ado, I want to introduce Maggie. She is brilliant. She has her MD. She has her IBCLC, which is the highest uh, licensure that you can obtain as a lactation consultant. She has her midwifery license. What have you not done? Two kids. <laughs> I she now has to the moon. chickens. I now have chickens.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh,
1: she makes sourdough. Like,. <laughs> Come on. I knit sweaters. I'm an old lady. That's what I (laughs) (laughs) am. My grandma hobbies. Uh, So it's really interesting, right? You don't meet somebody every day who got their MD and then isn't using it. So let's dive right in to
0: see what happened. I started off, I went to medical school in 2009. I started. I did a Six year accelerated program overseas. Um, For those that don't know, I am an immigrant into this country. Thanks, mom and dad. Um, I was born in Poland and then we moved here when I was younger. And I always told myself that I was going to go back to Poland and study there. Um, And that's essentially what I did. So you went
1: to medical school in Poland. Yes. Were
0: you the kid that had straight A's, knew you wanted to be a doctor (laughs) when you were eight? Ish. <laughs> um, I definitely. I knew I wanted to be a doctor uh, from a young age. I really liked uh, healing and how the body worked, and I wanted to help. I wanted to be of service, and that's something that really drew me in. And um, my grades, I was, you know, not like a 4.5 GPA student, but I was closer to the 4.0, um, depending on the semester. Um, what I did though, is I, when I went to Poland, I had to do these prerequisites. So I did high school, I, you know, I did like pre-calculus and these advanced classes in high school. And then before I went to Poland, I was, uh, at a local university. I did a year, I did the prerequisites that I was missing or needed in order to apply. And then I applied and then I went overseas. And so the, medical university model there is it's six years. And so it's more accelerated than the standard US model. Of course. (laughs) And um, so it's basically like your undergraduate and your medical uh, training all in one. So I did that. I did six years. I graduated in 2015 with my MD. And then I was dating my now husband. And my plan originally was to stay in Europe. I was going to probably move to Italy and live my best life eating gelato and pasta. Not huge wine drinker. Sounds like a great plan to me. All Right. It was going to be a great time. But I started dating my now husband my last two years of medical school. We did date long distance. God bless that man for putting up with me and traveling out to Poland to see me. So, um, yeah, so plans changed. And then I came back here to the States. My parents were still here. Um, My brother's family was here. And – When you come back as a foreign graduate, there's a few things you have to do. So I took my USMLEs, which are my licensing exams. I passed those. And then there's this third party called the ECFMG, which is the Educational Committee for Foreign Medical Graduates. Once you have all your documents, they verify and they're like, yep, you're eligible to work in the U.S. So I got ECFMG certified so I could work here. Um, I did... A transitional period where I worked at a local ER and um, really kind of wanted to decide of like, do I want to go the ER route, which I really liked, and do I want to go primary care, which I also really liked. I just, I couldn't find my footing in a specialty I really loved. Um, Everything had something that I liked and everything had something that I didn't like.
1: What did you like and dislike about the ER?
0: I... Loved being able to help so many people. I liked that it was fast paced and that you kind of were always on your toes. You didn't know what you were going to get. It kind of sounds like birth. <laughs> okay. um, but what I didn't like is that I didn't feel fulfilled. Like I was doing something long term for impact. Um,
1: you were doing a patch and send.
0: Yes. Mm-hmm. And I felt like I just want to help people and that's why I originally went into healthcare or helping people, you know, in medicine in the first place. And when I was in medical school too, I remember I started asking questions that, you know, people didn't ask. And when I was in medical school, there was no functional medicine or integrative health. Like that didn't exist yet, but if I were to say how I thought back then, it was more functional medicine. Like, okay, here's the body. Here's how it works. How do we restore it to its normal optimal function? And I remember being in my nephrology um, rotation and I asked a question, you know, why why are we doing all these things? Is there a way that we could potentially help them to recover function in their kidneys so they didn't have to be long-term on these diuretics, right? given the circumstance sometimes we can support the body to recover and other times the damage is too far gone that you know they need to be on medication long term but i remember asking that question and i was met with a why why would you do that don't 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 ask those questions and then i had an attending who was a specialist in diabetes and she told me um you know what no one should really be on medication long-term. Medication is a tool to help us heal, but we should always get to the root cause. Mm -hmm. Um, And that always really stuck with me. And so even when I was interviewing um, for residency, I interviewed on the East Coast and West Coast, and I interviewed at some really well-known, world-renowned hospitals. And I remember asking this endocrinologist who was interviewing me, and I asked him, I was like, okay, so... uh, I know that this is serves a lower income population, which I loved, like helping this the community. This is for your residency. This is Placement? for residency, okay. And um, this was for internal medicine. And um, I asked him, so what do you, what is the long term plan? How does this you know program? How will it prepare me to help with you know potentially getting people off medications or helping in a low income uh, setting where you don't have resources to health coaches and all the high end fitness things, right? How do we use what we have to help people heal and get off medications long-term? And his response was basically like, again, don't ask that question. Why are you asking that question? The medication works and they stay on it. And I was like, ah, that doesn't sit well with me. That's not what I want to do. And so I couldn't really find, um, you know, and that was probably one of my top choices that I wanted to uh, actually – learn in for residency. But that interview made me feel absolutely terrible and reconsider what I wanted to do. And I was six months pregnant at that time.
1: Um, your first, with my
0: first, with my first. And then I decided, you know, I'm going to have this baby. It's too close to the start of the, you know, residency cycle. I'm just going to withdraw. I don't know, like how I'm going to be postpartum. So I'm just going to take like a gap year. Um, And then during this time period, I had already started working as the director of research and development for a biomedical engineering company here in Los Angeles. Um, We created and developed technology, uh, ironically, to better diagnose and treat strabismus. And for those of you who don't know what strabismus is, it is when one of the or both of the eyes cross. Um, And why is that ironic? My two-year-old has... And I cross. (laughs) Um, We, you know, I'm fortunate that I was in this line of work and I understood the therapy and I read thousands of research articles because we've been able to implement a lot of the stuff that I learned and we put into practice. And, you know, she, you know, it's a slow recovery, but she's getting better. And I know I say that all the time, like she's getting much better. But from where she was when her eye started crossing to where she is now, she's, I would say conservative guess like 70 percent better where she only crosses really sporadically but her 3d her depth perception is preserved she can see really well and that is the key so that's you know the irony of my life (laughs) Um, but in doing this role of director of research and development right it kept me busy during my gap too and um thousands of research articles Um, reading through publications. We got into different universities throughout the U.S., right? That was my job to implement our technology and see if we can do some stuff. We got in with a clinic in Harvard, um, and we did our uh, research with them, and we got published for this um, pretty popular uh, ophthalmology conference. It was in Hawaii. I was 36 weeks pregnant, so I couldn't go. The um, CEO of the company is (laughs) – I love him. He's a surgeon, a bariatric surgeon to be specific. And he started the company because one of his sons, he had twins, also had an eye cross And that was his starting point to it. Um, but anyway, he looked at me and he's like, are you going to go? And I was like, I, I want to. And then my OB said, you could probably go there, but you might not be able to come back because you'll be too advanced pregnant. And he was like, yeah, you can't, you can't be on my plane.
1: <laughs> He's like, I, I will not be catching your baby. And I
0: thought airplane. he was kidding. I was <laughs> like, ha, ha, ha. Yeah, no, I'm going to sit right next <laughs> to you. And he looked me straight in the eyes like, no, he, you're not allowed on my plane. And then I was like, oh. So okay. th-
1: that, for those of you that don't know, at 36 weeks pregnant, flying at that altitude, that pressure change can cause your water to break. Um, there are always risks of blood clots um, as well. You know, and
0: and airlines don't get comfortable with the advanced pregnancy, yeah. um, which is funny because I remained pregnant for like another five weeks after oh, that. Oh, the
1: irony. The that irony. is your life.
0: <laughs> Could have been in Hawaii enjoying myself, but. So
1: tell us a little bit about your pregnancy. Are you seeing an OB? Are you seeing
0: a midwife? Oh, I didn't even know what a midwife was. <laughs> uh, I was seeing an OB. I saw an OB who I liked. Um, Her personality was really – she's really kind, and she wanted to be more midwifery-minded. And she's loved by the birth community in Los Angeles. Yes. She's great. But, you know, at the end of the day, she's still an OB. So I had an uneventful, uncomplicated pregnancy. Um, I had 10-minute appointments, and I rarely had time to ask questions, nor did I really think I had questions because I did my OB rotation – I thought I knew a lot as it was. Plot twist, I didn't. (laughs) Um, And so I went to my 40-week appointment, and at my 39-week appointment, she had checked me, and she's like, no, you're completely closed and posterior. Basically, my cervix was hiding and said, we're not ready to have the baby. And she goes, we can continue to wait because first-time moms, on average, go 10 days past their due date. Which is amazing
1: that she said that. I don't think I know of an OB that has ever said that you know, it's like, well, we should induce you at 39 weeks so that you're less likely to have a C-section.
0: Yeah. Well, then the follow-up sentence to that was, (laughs) but there is, (laughs) there it there it is, there is, there is a study that came out that said that we can induce you as early as 39 weeks and it does decrease the rate of a cesarean. And I was like, oh, I haven't read that study yet. That's interesting. Well, I'll go home and I'll think about it. And my sister-in-law was an L&D nurse and I remember talking to her about it and she kind of, just laughed and was like, "Yeah, I mean, you're gonna have to think about that one if you want to do that." And I was like, "I don't know what that means. Like, I need a yes or no. Is that a good idea? Is that a bad idea?" So then, when you do a quick Google search, naturally, all of the things were like, "Yeah, this is a great idea, fantastic." But you know, my mom was my voice of reason, and she was like, "Well, why don't you just wait until next week? You're like four days out from your next appointment. What's the point?" So then, um, Amelia was due April 1st, which was Easter. And so I went in, I think, the next day for my appointment. And um, my OB checked me, and I was four centimeters. That's amazing. Had zero contractions. Zero contractions. let's get you halfway, and you don't even know. Yeah. um, Was nice. But so she checked me, and then she did a membrane sweep, which I didn't know that's what she was doing. I just felt a lot of pressure. And I remember telling her, like, "Um, whatever you're doing, I'm going to pee on you. (laughs) She's like, please don't. She's like, oh no no, I'm almost done. Please don't pee on me. Please don't pee on me. And I was like, well, <laughs> you gotta get out of me because I'm gonna pee on you. Like that was just it. <laughs> and so you're four centimeters. I just stretched you. You should go, you know, get brunch, walk around, um, and if you want, we can get you to the hospital and um, let's have a baby. So it's my mind. I'm like, great, I'm in labor, and you're I don't like, feel brunch,
1: a thing. Brunch, baby. This sounds great.
0: Yeah, it's it like fantastic love here. So then we went to brunch and then we go to the hospital and you know I was getting induced cuz I was not in labor. And so I get to the hospital, they check me in, they start the pitocin and I have done zero research about a natural birth and unmedicated birth. Um support advocacy, because in my mind, I'm a physician and the hospital is a great place. And it's also a place of business. So you can't be admitted
1: and not contracting. That's, that bed is needed. So we need to get you contracting because
0: we're not going to take on the liability of sending you home. Exactly. And based off my vaginal exam, there's something that they use called the Bishop score, which basically kind of helps guide you what the likelihood of success of an induction would be based off of the cervical exam. And so my Bishop score was favorable. I'm four centimeters. I'm, you know, my cervix is soft and ripe and, and it's full term. I'm full term. So yeah. an induction or augmentation, as they called it, would be, you know, easy breezy. And- It wasn't. Um, I got started on Pitocin at like 1230. And then by eight o'clock at night, I was maxed out on Pitocin. The anesthesiologist came in and this was the first moment that I was like, oh, no, I've made a poor decision because the anesthesiologist came in at eight o'clock at night while I'm having these hard contractions that I didn't really prepare for on how I was going to cope with them. I just thought I'm going to have a natural birth that's nice Maggie <laughs>
1: one does not just have a natural birth no
0: like it you need to prepare for it not and you with, need a team
1: yeah not with your first baby at least
0: yeah and um he came in and he's like do you want an epidural and I was like mm, no I thought I would do this naturally and his words were that's nice um maybe horrible <laughs> right he's like maybe if you were having a normal birth but women have been having babies since the dawn of time and I was like yeah but you are in a hospital tied to monitors with medication that is changing your labor. There is nothing natural about this. So you should get an epidural. I mean. He's not
1: wrong. I don't disagree with him. I think he's not wrong. on Pitocin, you should get an epidural.
0: But, you know, I was mad. I was like, I will show you, sir. I will show you. Um, and so basically then he coerced me and bullied me. And he said, well, it's 8 o'clock at night now, and if you don't want the epidural now, you're going to call me at midnight, and I might be tired. Like, is that a threat? Are you going to do my epidural poorly? Because first of all, you're a provider. You shouldn't be saying that. But you know, the choice could be like, conversation could have been like, okay, well, when you're ready, you can call me, and I'll be back here, and we'll place the epidural.
1: Yeah, but that's such an indication of that burnout that healthcare providers experience because- If we were getting called to births multiple nights a week for multiple deliveries a yeah. night, you know, we would definitely want to sway somebody to call us. Or, or Sooner than later. Yeah, yeah. yeah to, to be able to attend to them before we know we're going to have interrupted sleep, especially yeah. when you can see the writing on the wall. It's a first-time mom. mom. She's on Pitocin. She's going to be calling tonight for an epidural.
0: Yeah. Um. Now that, like, I understand the psychology of it and I understand, you know – I'm like, yeah, like everything he did is understandable. Um, But I still, you know, still in hindsight, the way he spoke to me was not okay. And I wish that I would have advocated better for myself from the beginning and even in my pregnancy to say, hey, I, you know, want to learn more about doing this naturally and whatnot. So fast forward, um, it's midnight. Lo and behold, I'm like, well, I'm going to get the epidural now because (laughs) I was... Bring him back. (laughs) Bring (laughs) him back. I was not progressing as quickly as I thought I would be but again my body wasn't ready so I maxed out on the spitocin, I get the epidural within the hour after I fell asleep and my epidural was not the best because I was essentially paralyzed from the waist down and I couldn't feel my contractions but if I laid down flat I also couldn't breathe and so I had to sit up more, and my husband, I'd have to wake him up because my foot will fall off the bed, and I couldn't lift it. I couldn't move a toe.
1: So to, to be clear, you weren't actually paralyzed, which is right. a risk of an epidural. Um, you were just so anesthetized that you had no control over your lower extremities.
0: Right. Yeah. It just, that's what it felt like, that I was like, well, I don't have anything from the waist down. Where'd yeah. it go?
1: Which is a really kind of panicking type of feeling.
0: Uh and my personality is I need control. <laughs> really?
1: <laughs> surprise, surprise! All of our clients are laughing right now. At right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but, the, like, I can't move my toe, and now I'm reliant. Like, hey, Cody, hey, babe, um, good morning. Can oh, you pick no. my foot up? <laughs> like, sorry, my foot fell. <laughs> can you can you put it back up? <laughs> and he's like, you know, waking up every twenty minutes. Because I'm like, well. N- I feel like it should move now. The other foot should be on top because this is just probably can't be good for me. Um, It was a terrible experience. And in that moment, I was like, I hate this. I will never have an epidural again. But then all of a sudden into my room comes the entire labor and delivery unit (laughs) running in and they're like screaming at me. And they're like, roll over. I'm like, I can't move. You roll me over. (laughs) You were going to have to roll me over. <laughs> I just And so what happened was is um, my baby's heart rate couldn't be tracked anymore because I was on the mo- continuous monitor. They had left the room and then they were alerted in the middle of the night because she was down. And so this was a really big trigger for me because they said, oh, um, my nurse was giving a report to the charge. The charge said, how long has the baby been down for? And my nurse goes, she's been down for three minutes. We can't find a heartbeat.
1: And of course, with your background, you're thinking through, well, how long does she have before she has brain damage?
0: Yeah. And yeah. that stuck with me for a really long time. Um, and then after that, you know, um, the charge nurse was like, "We'll prep the back room. And then I took off the oxygen mask. I was like, we will not be doing that. Do, <laughs> so not, do prep not prep the back the room. room. I know what that means. We are not going to do a cesarean. Um, and by the grace of God, truly, um, they got her heartbeat back up and she was okay. I did have to switch positions back and forth. They did something called intrauterine resuscitation. So I got oxygen. They changed my position. They gave me terbutaline, a medication to stop my contractions. And then they monitored me. We're just twinning. We're just twinning. And, um, yeah. So then... The next day, you know, I have had to be moved back and forth a few times. The next morning, my OB comes in, and I asked her, I'm like, hey, so she was down for quite a bit of time. Is everything okay? Yeah, yeah, everything's fine. We're just going to break your water, your eight centimeters. And this was like eight o'clock in the morning-ish. And I was like, okay. And I was thinking like, okay, they're going to break my water. Just let the water be clear. Let the water be clear. And then they broke my water. And she's like, oh, the water's clear. Looks good. Oh, thank the Lord. The water is clear.
1: Which... If it's not clear and there's what's called meconium in the water, sometimes that is an indicator of fetal distress. The baby will pass a bowel movement in utero and the NICU team will be called to attend the delivery just in case the baby struggles to breathe on their own.
0: So fast forward an hour, now there's meconium present oh no because <laughs> you know why not um but nobody's bothered by it they're like oh yeah you know it's nothing we're just gonna do this like saline infusion to kind of help um dilute it and filter it out and you know because there's meconium we're gonna have to call the NICU team in for the delivery and so now my baby's been down for three minutes they couldn't find a heartbeat and I don't trust their timing and now we need the NICU team in and I'm already numb on the inside I'm like I have no emotion for the rest of this birth. Um, And then three hours later, I think I was like, I just, I couldn't feel anything. My epidural started wearing off. Um, The medication actually ran out and my nurse never reordered it. She's a bad (laughs) drug dealer. And, you know, I'm thankful that she did that because when it came time to push, I could feel the contractions, not to their whole extent, but I would say like 75%. But maybe I could feel more and I was just emotionally numb to it. And I was like, whatever, let's just have a baby. Um, and so I was started pushing. I was like, ah, you know, I think I should probably start pushing in my head thinking I needed approval to start pushing until my nurse is like, I think I need to start pushing. They're like, do you feel an urge? I'm like, I feel nothing, but I just feel like I probably should. I didn't have an explanation for it. They're like, OK, that's cute. You're a first time mom. So, you know, we'll start in a little bit. And then a new nurse came in. Her name was Daisy. Shout out to Daisy because you were the MVP. And she stood by my side. In the room was Daisy, myself, and my husband only. And my OB was next door with, I think, a second or third time mom who was having her baby. And Daisy called my OB and said, "Okay, well, she's ready to push. So you might want to come in. And my OB goes, oh, she's a first time mom. I have time. Then (laughs) she comes running in to put her gown on because she wasn't going to make it and Daisy was like hey so um, I need you to stop actually pushing because your OB not going to make it and I'm like I don't okay I feel her head right there so how do I stop pushing she goes yeah you're just going to have to stop that
1: she just needs to be able to chart that she told you that because you cannot actually stop yourself from pushing your uterus still pushes yeah. it's very uncomfortable though to try
0: yeah and but then it's funny because then Amelia had this little like ring on her head Aww. But so then the OB runs in and um, does the delivery. I remember Amelia's head comes out and she restitutes. And I'm like laying, you know, in the hospital supine position, but I can, my feet in stirrups, but I can see okay, hold her on. head. Hold on, Dr. Maggie. Oh, sorry. Restitution sorry. supine. <laughs> let's
1: let's bring it back to the podcast for a second.
0: <laughs> so I'm laying on my back in that typical position you see at the hospital. And my legs are in the stirrups, so they're in those like foot containers. <laughs> And I can't see her head come out, but what I do see is her then turn. So restitution is where the baby turns their head to meet their shoulders. But when she restituted, she basically did like a 180, and she was facing me. And this kid is purple, but she has these angry eyebrows, which she proudly gets from her mama. Probably. (laughs) I said proudly. I, oh, proudly. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And um, she takes – she literally looks around the room. She's mad. She's real mad. And she starts squawking. And then the NICU team's like, okay, well, our job is done here. There's nothing to do. Because when a baby – when there's meconium, the concern is the baby being born and breathing that meconium in. And once she took a breath in and had this really good lusty cry, they're like, well, there's not much more for us to do here. The
1: current evidence says if there's meconium present – And the baby's born vigorous with that lusty cry and is transitioning well. Keep your hands off the baby.
0: Yeah. And so they put her on my chest and I had no feeling. I just thought... Emotionally. Emotionally, yeah. I remember asking them, I'm like, "Um, do I touch her? And they're like, yeah, this is your baby. And I was like, okay. Um, And my husband was so excited. He went to the warmer. He got to see her, take pictures, do all this stuff. And I just... Was there, Um, and then I went into the analytical part of my brain, and I was like, "Okay, I just had a baby, and so step one after having a baby is now I got to breastfeed. When can I start breastfeeding?" And they're like, "Whenever you want." So like, okay, and all I knew about breastfeeding back then was that I had a baby and I had boobs, and they were supposed to work they, together. They connect. <laughs> they connect. Um. So yeah, and so that birth threw me into a year and a half of postpartum depression and anxiety because I could not bond to Amelia, my daughter, because those things that triggered me in that birth for easily the first six months made me think that any given moment she would just die. And so why am I going to bond to a baby that might not be here?
1: Well, and sometimes those neurological issues don't present themselves for a long time. If there, there was oxygen deprivation, it's a watch and wait. And so you're protecting yourself.
0: Yeah. And so for a long time, every little thing that she did, I was super analytical and hypercritical about, um, she's brilliant though. She's great. Ain't nothing (laughs) damaged about her. Ain't nothing. She's fantastic. But you know, those things in birth, you know, and having a traumatic birth is not necessarily that it has to reach some level of trauma to count as a traumatic birth. Um, That trauma is individual to us all. And so that birth, although it didn't end in a cesarean, it was very traumatic for me. And it was very traumatic for my formative year as a mother, as a new
1: mom. Mm -hmm. Um, And then breastfeeding was extraordinarily challenging for you, which adds insult to injury.
0: Yeah. Um, I... I was vegan at the time and I was trying to breastfeed her and I didn't know anything other than the basics, right? Didn't even know how to latch her properly. Um, Second night syndrome, you know, she's awake, she's crying because now she wants to nurse all the time, which is a normal physiological behavior. I was like, something's wrong. She needs milk. Started her on formula. Mm -hmm. And then I was trying to, I really just didn't know anything. And my, she went to, she was trending towards failure to thrive because she was born six pounds, eight ounces. And then I think she was five pounds, five ounces at one point, like at two weeks of age.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And not normal. No, my pediatrician was like, well, I don't know. Maybe if you eat some bacon, your milk will be fattier. Oh, no. She, and I was like, no way. Yeah. I was like, um, I'm, I'm a vegan, so that's not going to, well, maybe an avocado smoothie. Like that also doesn't sound good. Also, um, strike number one um and then there were two more things and then i had to fire her <laughs> so you know good day. a good day <laughs> um but yeah so so
1: you've had amelia challenging postpartum you're experiencing a postpartum mood disorder you took the gap year now what i,
0: I hate medicine <laughs> i was really just i was burnt out this what i was just in the season where everything was dark mm-hmm. um and i remember talking to one of my Best friends, and I told her, I was like, I don't want to do this. Like, this isn't for me. Like, you know, I started trying to heal myself out of this mood disorder, and it was working. And as I started doing more, I decided that I was going to, you know, then integrative health and functional medicine were becoming more popular and mainstream. And so then I went back and I um, enrolled to do this integrative health practitioner um, certification and teaching. And so then I was doing that, and I was like, oh, yeah, like, I need to heal myself from like the root cause and then I vowed like well if this is my root cause I need to make sure that no one ever feels the way that I felt I need to make sure that no mother ever has to go through what I went through that they have support and information and choices and that it doesn't feel like this terrible daunting thing um and then my best friend's dad was a chief of anesthesiology and he's like um you know, don't leave medicine, come back, like try out anesthesia, you know, apply, interview, everyone's asleep. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know. Okay, all the, the patients are asleep. The, the patients are asleep. <laughs> the anesthesiologists are awake. Yeah. And so I was like, okay, you know, still trying to figure sort things out. Like maybe I'm just, you know, upset on this end for something else. So I do this, um, like two to three week rotation, um, at this university on the East coast that I interviewed with. And it's funny cause my interview question was, um, if we give you this position, will you take it? And I was like, yes. Oh. I mean, I didn't feel that way, but like, what are you going to say, no?
1: say? No. They're like, okay, well let's just save each other's time and yeah. goodbye. He's
0: like, great. He's like, I see your application. I see everything looks fantastic. If we offer you this position, will you take it? And I was like, yeah. Okay. Let's, let's do that. Um, but then I was doing my rotation there, and it just you know it was solidifying all the things of why I didn't want to be in medicine anymore. I you know and again this is
1: this is 2020.
0: This is 2020. So this was February, beginning of March 2020. So right? right at,
1: before the pandemic. Yeah, and you're on the East Coast. And I'm on testing the East Coast. Out this situation in mm-hmm. anesthesia and Cody and the baby are on the West Coast.
0: Yep, Amelia is just about two years old. Um, my husband's here and, you know, he can't transfer his job to the East Coast, um, that easily. And then as COVID shut everything down, that wasn't going to happen. And so it also became a conversation of, I can stay here, but I can stay here and have my career. I don't have my family anymore.
1: You have to choose between your career and your family. Yeah. And what do you choose?
0: Yeah, I, obviously, my career i'm just kidding <laughs> jokes um obviously i chose my family that was the most important thing to me because no one knew then what was going to happen like you went to work and you didn't know when you would see your family again like um i know physicians who were working at the hospital who rented out hotels or airbnbs or something to separate themselves from their families because they're like oh, we don't know what's happening we can't be you know bring taking the chance to home. bring it home yeah. So I came back, and again, now I'm depressed again because you know how to make a really hard decision. Um, but then, as one does, I got pregnant again.
1: There wasn't a lot to do during COVID. <laughs> you, right. <laughs> we both had COVID babies. We did.
0: <laughs> so, <clears throat> yeah, so I got pregnant with my second, Natalie, and our local hospital had just atrocious policies. And I thought to myself, well, none of this is evidence-based because none of this is anything that I learned. It's all fear-mongering. And I refuse for somebody to rip my newborn baby out of my hands because I am not sick but tested positive. Mm. And that's what they did is if you tested positive, but you were asymptomatic, your newborn baby was removed from you until you tested negative. And people were testing negative like three months later. Which took us a
1: while to figure out.
0: Yeah. And then so where does your baby go? They can't go home with you. So what? They stay in NICU jail. And so not only are you separated, here's a NICU bill for a baby that didn't need it. I was like, we are not doing that. And one of my old friends who I've known since middle school had all her babies um, with midwives in San Diego. And she was like, you know, you should really check out midwives, like after your first birth, you know, you might find it refreshing.
1: And what's unique to us, um, to midwives is that you, if you're having a home birth, the midwives are with you for about three hours postpartum, supervising that normal postpartum recovery. And then there's discharge criteria for the mother and baby to meet. And if they've met that criteria, they're discharged around three hours postpartum. We tuck the mom and baby into their own bed and we go home similarly in a birthing center you're there about three hours and once you meet discharge criteria you're sent home yeah so you don't have that separation um
0: of mom and baby or or driving and or of your older
1: children at home yeah
0: that's true um so I looked into midwives there were a couple in my area and so I called and interviewed and then I went with the midwife that I had and um I had a great experience. Um, I was like, so we're doing all the testing and all these things. And they were like, why? I was like, what do you mean why? Because I want them. (laughs) Um, And then I had to do a lot of, you know, soul searching. And in that time, I was working on getting my IBCLC, um, which is an international board certified lactation consultant. Because again, I was going to learn everything so that I would not have the same experience that I did the first time around.
1: So I'm getting trained as a doula. You're getting trained as an
0: IBCLC. We are solving our own
1: problems. Yes. Because the world is on our shoulders. Yep. (laughs) Yep. We make a great team. Yeah.
0: Right. (laughs) Um, And so throughout my care, my midwife was like, okay, so you're a doctor. I was like, yeah. She's like, what are you doing? I'm like, what do you mean? Nothing. (laughs) I'm going to do something with breastfeeding and postpartum. I don't know. Like I was all over the place. And so she would talk to me about it a lot and, you know, well, how do you – How do you see yourself treating people and what specialty did you want to do? And kind of it was like therapy of working out. And so I remember one day I was just like, Well, this is how I wanted to practice. This is what I saw myself doing. And she said, Well, you sound like a midwife. So you can go to this school, you can do this challenge program, and then I will train you. And I was like, Oh, I don't know about that. Because at the same time, I also applied, you know, again, for a surgery position, because as one does, you go back to the things that hurt you. (laughs) Um, And this was like a surgical position in Southern California that was like 45 minutes away from my house. I was like, that's fine. And so then I go through my midwifery care. I have my daughter, who Natalie was not necessarily an easier birth because she was two pounds heavier (laughs) than Amelia. And she had a really tight cord. So I had to work with her a little bit and had to get out of the tub and, you know, um, do some stuff. But she was great and she did fine. And I had this blissful postpartum. I was like, man, I feel good. And as my midwife is helping me get dressed out of the birth center, she's like, okay, so I need you not to put your clothes on the way you're putting your clothes on. Like you need to sit down and stand up slowly. You're moving like you didn't have a baby. And I was like, I feel great. And she's like, yeah, you're going to do that until you pass out.
1: Yeah, those second time moms, they can't believe how good they feel and they want to just great. bounce off the walls Felt right Felt on
0: top of the world. Um just euphoric. I was like within 12 hours of having my daughter, I'm full depression. I wanted nothing to do with anything. Um and with with, with this first, with the first, first one, one, with Natalie, I was so happy, things were so great. I was, you know, we were breastfeeding and I wasn't supplementing because I knew the second night syndrome was a thing and I just felt so good. Um, and then, you know, naturally Natalie had a tongue tie and a lip tie and breastfeeding was painful and we had to work through those things, but, um, which we did and learned a lot about myself and why breastfeeding was really hard for me, which I'm sure we'll talk about, it'll um, be an and it'll be an episode, um, but I really got to learn my body and respect it. And we did get to successfully breastfeed with our definition of success for two and a half years. Um, and it was fantastic, and I'm so grateful for that. And when Natalie was about six months postpartum, I had gotten in for this surgical um <clears throat> position and I had a conversation with my husband. Um And I was like, okay, so I can either go this route and I can go start the surgical position uh, come July or I can, you know, take a couple more months off and then I can go start at the birth center and start midwifery. And, you know, we talked about the pros and the cons and my husband really is my voice of reason because he's like, listen, if you are set on surgery, I will support you 100% in that. But are you sure that's where you want to be? Because it seems like over the last year, this is the happiest I've seen you in a very long time in having this idea of being a midwife in your head. You, I haven't seen you happier or more fulfilled. Mm. And I was like, really? Are you sure? Um, And so then I turned down the surgery position and I went to go to the birth center and that's where I met you. That's how we met. And that's how we
1: met. I was told you have a student now. And I I was like, hi. I said, no, I don't. And I'm over in the corner like, <laughs> well, when I was told there's this <clears throat> there's this MD from Poland who Poland. is going to come be the student at the birth center, I was a staff midwife there at the time, what I pictured is not you. <laughs> in You Walk Through the Doors, you're like this beautiful, young thank you, thank you woman so with no accent.
0: You have Full. all your teeth. I have all my teeth. <laughs> <laughs> I should have. I always say... That I should start, like, when people introduce me, like, oh, she's Polish, I should show me, like, hello, <laughs> how are you? Uh, um, but
1: we hit it off right away, yeah. and and it was a great time that we had working together and spending days in a row at a time there, just yeah. doing clinic and then delivering clinic and delivery. Yeah. And all and... of
0: it's so funny how it just worked out, Um, God's plan, because most of the births that I... And I was on for 24-7 for the first year there because – On call. On call 24-7 because that's what you do when you come out of medicine and you think that's how you're supposed to live. Little did I know that you could have time off call, guys. Like, that's appropriate. Um, but anyway, so I'm on call 24-7, and all births tend to fall on days where Andrea is also on call because she split on call with the other midwife there. And so we ended up having a lot of time together to bond and reform our friendship. And um, – be able to dream up of what working together would look like. And um, it's funny because now it's like the easiest way when people are like, so what's your story? How did you go from being an MD to a midwife? I'm like, do you have 45 minutes for us to talk about this? Um, It's just so much easier to say, you know what? Yeah, I'm an MD because I worked really, really hard and sacrificed a lot to get that credential. But I specialize in midwifery and I am a midwife Mm -hmm. Um, and I love it.
1: Well, our clients are really fortunate that you made that transition, and we celebrated a really fantastic first year of practice together um, as co-owners of Holistic Birth and Wellness, and we're really excited about all the things that we're going to be bringing your way, including this podcast Make sure that you reach out to us with any questions, either about this episode or topics that you want covered in future episodes. Yes. Thank you, (laughs) Maggie, for sharing your story. I'm sure that you'll hear more bits and pieces of both of our stories as we move forward, but we were just really thankful to carve out some time to show you who your hosts are and maybe earn a little bit of street credit with you so that you keep listening and learning and having better healthcare and experiences.
0: Thank you guys so much. We are really, truly so thankful to be able to put this podcast on and to have you guys that listen and to be able to reach a broader audience and, you know, help spread the word more. See you next time. Bye.